0: Alphabet, Microsoft, Donald Trump, and Sir Tim Berners-Lee have opinions. NGINX gets bought up. The Canadian exchange saga continues. And we're talking about change management on tonight's Iron Sysadmin podcast, episode 57. Welcome to the Iron SysAdmin Podcast. Alright, welcome to tonight's episode of the Iron SysAdmin Podcast. That sure sounds repetitive. I even redid the title, or I even redid the intro, and I still feel like it's repetitive. It's horrible. Anyway, I'm your host, Nate, and I am joined tonight by my co-host, Charles.
1: That's keeping alive the principle that all four co-hosts can never occupy the same space, virtual or physical, at the same time.
0: Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, Dustin is busy with family life. I mean, I think he's got like a permanent pass until his kid is like three. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just the way it works. Um, And I don't know if Jason wants us to say anything about where he's going, but he's on a plane. Maybe he's in the witness protection program or something. So but,
1: well, he's not here. Wherever he might he's be, he's
0: not here. He's he's fleeing the country. Perhaps, I hope not. Anyway, spoilers. <laughs> so we got quite a bit of news lined up for tonight. So I guess we may as well get going. Our first article is from Engadget. Um, so this this sort of harkens back to our last episode where we talked about uh, the folks who brought us Gab are also bringing us a comment section for the internet, well, Alphabet, a.k.a. the company that owns Google and many other properties, starting with various letters, which I think is why they called themselves Alphabet. Really re- weird plan for a, a business name, but whatever. Uh, they're developing a AI-powered Chrome extension, of course it's Chrome, uh, that hides toxic comments on certain... Uh, I, I guess the the idea of the Chrome extension would be that it would work theoretically, anywhere, uh, but this is apparently also technology that's already built into a number of sites, uh, so like, Twitter has been trying it out, but I guess they they haven't rolled it out yet because Twitter is still toxic as hell, uh, but YouTube, you can turn on, if you're a YouTuber and you have a YouTube channel, you can turn on, like, extended content filtering that, that will try to block out toxicity, and uh, that's supposedly based on this same uh, AI, uh, they had a name for it here. Perspective. Introduced in Jigsaw, which is apparently like the name of the sub-whatever uh, organization within Alphabet that developed this thing. Which is also an odd name for a Wasn't Jigsaw like the killer from Saw? I think so. It seems like weird. Anyway, Perspective. Uh, so it's uh, it brings about sort of an interesting... Um, Censorship debate, I would think.
1: Um, Well, I mean, the government censors things. Um, Private company making a tool available for people to filter content. Um, There's a lot of demand for tools like this. I mean, they're, so I say, don't read the comments because they're swamps. Yeah. Um, The only comment sections that are all readable are the ones that are already being heavily moderated by the site. Itself. So you've already got this kind of filtering taking place. It's maybe just a little less obvious. Right, right. So, I mean, look, I, le- I used to read slash dot on a plus five with a penalty for any account that had a seven digit UID. This <laughs> isn't all that different in some ways. Yeah, right.
0: So it's, um, I-, I like the fact that it's currently opt in. It's either opt-in, like in the example of a YouTube channel, um, it's opt-in for the content creator, uh, and in the example of a Chrome extension, uh, it's opt-in for the user. Uh, so that's you know good. Um, the thing I, the only thing I'm concerned about is like continuity, right? So if if I view the site without the extension um, versus say you view it with the extension. You could be missing out on continuity within the comments section, but uh, I don't know if that matters much. You know what I mean? Like, it's I don't not, think it does. It's not like a story usually is told in the in the comments. They could. I don't know.
1: It could. Um, I mean, in the best comment sections, you get that. But right. the best com- comment sections are already heavily moderated, so you're only getting a very very kind of incomplete picture of what's being said in there. Um, I don't know. Something's got to be done.
0: If you apply this thing to Reddit, does the entire site vanish? (sighs) (laughs) Same could be said for Twitter.
1: Same could be said for Twitter. Uh, You know, that's the thing about Twitter, right? I mean, lots of people are already curating their own experiences through... I mean, Twitter has something like this, I don't remember what it's called, that lets you filter... You know, like content from accounts that don't have a lot of followers. Yeah. And of course, you can block and mute um, as much as you want in order to curate what you can see. And I, I've seen a fairly robust discussion on Twitter um, about like what, you know, best practice for that, you know, when to block, when to mute, and to what extent should you engage with people or if people. Kind of come at you with an attitude. so You just, you know, block them and move on because life's too short.
0: Yeah, I I am curious. So they they use some examples in here about um, social networks and whatnot that have had, and they use examples of what problems those social networks have had. They cite uh, Twitter has its alt right meddlers and Nazis. I mean, I don't know if I've run across a Nazi on Twitter yet, but I guess it's there. Uh, I have. Facebook has struggled with anti-vaxxers. Now, I am a Facebook user. I have, other than, like, offhanded conversations, I don't think I've run into, like, outright hate from an anti-vaxxer on Facebook.
1: Now, I've certainly seen, um, I've certainly um, seen plenty of news accounts of anti-vaxxers on Facebook. And hate or not, you I mean you have a problem with people advocating a point of view that will get people killed.
0: Right. And YouTube has been forced to lock down comments on videos of young kids due to pedophilic, pedophilic comments, which that I had heard of, uh, and Reddit bans subreddits prone to spreading conspiracy theories. So the and
1: Reddit the, started cleaning house a couple of years ago. Yeah, I recall. The,
0: the problem here is where do you draw the line? Right? So you use these examples, right? Mm -hmm. Um, alt-right meddlers and nazis nazis sound bad we should maybe we should filter them Mm alt-right meddlers i think i need some examples of like what what sort of harm are they causing
1: well i mean a really good example would be something like um you know QAnon or pizzagate where you have a conspiracy theory that eventually led somebody who Maybe it doesn't employ the best judgment to walking into, um you know, walking into that uh, pizza restaurant with a gun to right. free the children who are being held in the sex slavery ring. Right, got, right. You've but got people, You've got people being swatted. You've, I mean, there are real consequences to unchecked toxic behavior. It becomes self-reinforcing.
0: But where um, do you, where do you draw the line between cockamamie schemes and actual, like, this could turn into a guy walking into a pizza shop with a machine gun?
1: Well, that's the frightening thing is that I don't know that you really can one way right. or the other. Right. Um, so so now you're... I think what we're talking about is giving people the tools to say, um, I'm going to start drawing a line. Um, you know, help right. me help me for some value of toxicity. And obviously, this, the part that's tricky is that depending on the transparency of the algorithm, you could have yes. some unwanted side effects. But
0: so, like in in today's media, look at it, look look, look at it from that perspective. Depending on which news agency you listen to, your view of the world is painted in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. If you listen to Fox News, you think Donald Trump is doing everything right, and those evil liberals are insane. You listen to CNN and you get the exact opposite picture, right? And it's really easy to convince people. I see it every day. I see, you know, I know people that are on both sides of that fence. And you hear stories from one side, and then you hear a very different story that uses the same points from the other side. And, like, who's curating the filter is what I'm getting at, and how transparent is it, which is what you just pointed to, right?
1: Well, you know, know, um, certainly, um, you know, all right, it'd be free to create a tone filter. I mean, facts are stubborn things, but I'm sure they can come up with a filter (laughs) that makes them go away but
0: my my sense,
1: my sense is that my sense is that for the majority of people, a baseline filter of toxicity is going to give them a better experience.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. the The, the thing I'm concerned about is when we're intentionally filtering information that comes into us, who's writing the filter? And how much control do we get over what's getting filtered? But yeah. for that matter, if there's too much control, can I filter out all of the good stuff that I see from the people who oppose me, so all I see is the negative, further cementing my echo chamber?
1: <laughs> you That's know? always the trick. I mean, we, we, you know every day we choose what we're going to listen to and what we're going to read and what we're not going to consume. Um, and, but there are some communities that I've participated in that are just so toxic from yes. assholes, yep. that at some level I realized that I had to rethink my participation because it was actively, you know, it was emotionally draining just to, even if I wasn't engaging, just to see that they were there and that they were doing that.
0: Um, I've been there.
1: And it's like, I, you know, it's the XKCD xkcd joke right you know i can't go to sleep somebody's wrong on the internet yes but, <laughs> but these people are tiresome and the problem is a lot of them thrive on that kind of conflict but for people who don't it's you know it's a real problem and eventually you know you can see a community just get wiped out by that kind of thing yeah because you know the trolls are the only ones left
0: yeah i mean i've i've used this example before but during the 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 trump and hillary uh, campaigns, I muted both of their names on my Twitter streams, because they were just so full of BS, you couldn't tell what was true, and it was just a bunch of people arguing.
1: Oh yeah, I remember uh Fall of 2016 was just exhausting. It was horrible. It was just a horrible uh, it, time to be on the internet. It really was. Uh, it's To an extent, it's gone better. I still have them uh, muted, so I don't know. <laughs> well, in as much as Fear for the Future got replaced by outright derision and mockery, I mean, I think things <laughs> kind of got better in some ways, but.
0: I'm not a, I'm uh, not a big fan of mockery either, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it, it, it's still toxic as hell. Yeah. But yeah. again, curate, and I make liberal use of the mute button. When I'm like, I'm sorry, I just, I don't need to hear from you.
0: Yeah, right, right. You're, you're, you're good enough. We don't need that anymore.
1: You know, if if that goes south, I think we'll know and we'll be able to do something about it. All right,
0: so moving along, I think we've beaten that up enough. Mm. Do you remember, I, I could be remembering incorrectly, but I swear this was a feature in Windows XP eventually that nagged you to upgrade to Windows 7 or Windows Vista. Am I remembering wrong? I don't
1: remember. I seem to remember
0: little taskbar tips popping up saying, like, you should really upgrade to such and such. At any rate, Microsoft is doing it again, or for the first time, depending on how good your memory is, or if I'm wrong. Uh, This is from Beta News, Um, apparently sometime in 2019, like later 2019, did they give a date? They said a few times in 2019, but starting in earnest... Oh, no. So January 14th, 2020 is, I guess, end of support for Windows 7. And to prepare users for this, Microsoft is going to start nagging them to upgrade to Windows 10. So uh, look forward to, if you're running Windows 7, which is arguably one of the best builds of Windows um, since Windows 2000... Uh, Be be ready to, one, stop getting updates at the beginning of 2020, and two, start getting nagged by Microsoft to upgrade. I don't know if they're still doing a free upgrade to Windows 10. I think they stopped that. I wonder if they're going to bring it back to try to get people to upgrade.
1: I thought it was pretty neat how the article didn't mention. Our article acted like the you know there was just Windows Seven and then Windows Ten, and it what doesn't even like mention Vista operating system in between the two of them.
0: Yeah, wait, Vista? No, Vista was before <laughs> Seven. Yeah, but, eight. Uh, right, Windows Eight. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> you're still on yep. Seven. <laughs> well,
1: it's like High, it's like Highlander Two. Never we'll just, happened. Yeah,
0: before. we'll just forget about that Windows Eight thing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I met the first time we imaged a Windows 8 machine in my last place of employment. We were almost literally crying with frustration the first time we played with Metro. Oh, man. Uh, Like, oh, where is that?
0: My brother-in-law probably still has a Dell laptop that he bought with Windows 8 on it. And he brought it to me for, I forget what it was. It wouldn't boot or something. Or Windows was acting flaky, probably had like malware on it or something. And I couldn't get the damn thing into safe mode. (laughs) That's how frustrating this thing was. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I've never owned a Windows 8 machine. Um, My wife and I, one Christmas, um, I basically got us both laptops because we both had aging laptops. That's like three years ago now, right around when Windows 10 was, was coming out. And hers came with Windows 8, but a free upgrade to Windows 10. So, the, I mean, before I even gave it to her, I upgraded it to Windows 10. I'm <laughs> like, we're not living with 8. We're not dealing with it. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, coming from someone who has disliked Windows for most of his career, I will say Windows 10 is not a bad build of Windows. Um, I don't run it frequently, but when I have had to run it, it's much less frustrating than I remember Windows being. And it's uh, it's more secure... According to Microsoft, it's even in this article. Uh, It's more secure than uh, Windows has ever been, which is good. Because that was always one of the big problems with... uh... Am I getting choppy or something? No. No? Okay. Weird. My machine is slowing down. Because of Slack, it seems. What the hell did you do, Slack? It just reloaded.
1: (sighs) You've been hacked. For I've, grand I've been people. hacked
0: because I'm not running Windows 10. Microsoft found out that I'm running Fedora, and they said, no, no, you must switch. Anyway, um, where was I? Oh, I think I was talking about how Windows 10 was a decent build of Windows, and I'll stand on that.
1: I've been fine with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I still don't use it to get work done. I basically use it for gaming and uh, a handful of other things that are not all that important. Um, I use Fedora for the podcast because it's the laptop I normally would run Windows 10 on. And I don't trust it to run the tools that I need to run to do the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's my level of uh, trust in Microsoft. And my MacBook, which I would use to do this, uh, doesn't like the audio inputs that I have to use from the mixer there i go hit my mic again i I gotta move my mic to someplace where i can't hit it like someplace out of arm's reach i don't know if that'll ever happen anyway um so yeah my my macbook which would be great to do the show on it doesn't like the audio inputs from the mixer It, it doesn't recognize the microphone so it's like this is it anyway i'm rambling i think we can move on unless you had more to say about being nagged by microsoft
1: I think Microsoft's whole approach to updating is fairly responsible, and I think they're moving in a good direction.
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I joke about them nagging and turning uh, Microsoft or turning Windows into Windows Seven into nagware, but it really is. I mean, it's end of support. You can't keep running it. If you want a secure operating system, you cannot continue to run Windows Seven. As great as it was, you're gonna have to upgrade if you want a machine that's going to continue to receive updates. And the last thing you want is a Windows machine that's not receiving updates. So it is responsible to nag people. Um, The thing I don't necessarily love is when they nag you to buy something, right? So I've got a perfectly functional machine running Windows 7, nagging me to go pay money for Windows 10, I think I'd have a little bit of a problem with. But if it's another case where it's like, hey, we'd really like you to upgrade, and we'll give it to you for a limited time for free, and if you get in at the right time, you can get it, I think I'd be cool with that. Assuming your machine can even run Windows 10. If you're on Windows 7, it's probably an older machine, you know. Mm. Yeah. So. All right. Moving on. This is from VentureBeat, which is a place I don't think I've ever heard of was linked from slash dot like uh you know anything that i seem to put in our show notes
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh remember that guy who invaded who invented the web
1: yeah i think uh, i think i heard of him once or twice
0: i didn't know that i mean this article implies that he's a physicist i didn't know that
1: that would make sense if he was working at cern yeah well again I hadn't thought about it, but yeah
0: i didn't know he was working at cern until i read this <laughs> article i guess i don't know much about tim <laughs> berners lee um I get, and you you said sir tim berners lee
1: from united uh, for services to technology
0: oh good good guy there uh yeah so he's basically went on um i guess it's the 30th anniversary of the uh, the birth of the world wide web so uh i guess he was speaking somewhere Was he speaking somewhere? No, it just says he made an open letter, although there's a picture of him speaking. I guess that's just because they needed a picture for the page. Uh, He wrote an open letter to the Internet, basically saying that um, the web in general needs to grow the hell up. (laughs) Uh, Basically citing that um, the web has become sort of a nasty place, and um, it's sort of a failing, of not of the technology, but of the people running it, or the people participating in it so that brings up an interesting point you know the the internet has always been kind of a scary place especially for impressionable people or for um, like minorities uh, people who are susceptible to hate basically and uh, he's really just bringing that to a point saying like things are getting out of hand
1: guys Well, and we've gone to the point now where, you know, in the early days, it was maybe less noticeable because there were fewer ways for people to be in touch with each other and just fewer people online in the first place. Now that everybody's there, um, the problems are very apparent and they're getting worse. I mean, this goes back to the first news item. What are you going to do to create a better experience for everybody on it?
0: I mean, I I can remember watching news articles from the mid to late '90s when I was really when the internet was really first hitting the home, right? About um, special police task forces that were doing things like looking for pedophiles online. Mm-hmm. So it, my matter. my earliest memories of the internet included that included yep. news articles or news reports. About or TV specials, I forget what it was, about how there are task forces looking for bad people on the internet. Because guess what? There's bad people in the world.
1: Right, <laughs> there always has we, been. <laughs> sure. But, you know, if, you're, if you grow up in a small town, um, you know, your small town probably mm-hmm. has somebody who's a pedophile, maybe, but in some ways, it's easier for them to get access to you on the internet than it might be in that town where everybody knows you that you yeah. know creepy sob is yeah that's um, a good point in the same way that you know you know you know all of a sudden it's possible for like-minded people to freely associate which is great in many cases you know you yeah. find people share your interests if people share your interest in being a jackass well now we've got and i now we've got a big collective of jackasses. Yeah, and that's, that's um, and they can coordinate. And that's, that's, that's
0: one of the one of the points that I wanted to try to touch on. This article is very negative. If you read through it, it's it's very much about how society is turning the web into this like perverse image of what it was designed to be. I think that the altruistic nature of interoperability on the internet, it's still there. You know, like I I can still reach out to fellow jeep enthusiasts to get info on how to replace the transmission in my jeep which is a thing that i recently had to go through the the accessibility of technical information online about how to get that done while i had a pretty good idea how to do it to begin with like that was essential there were little fiddly bits that i didn't know and i wouldn't know unless i had gone to college and or not college but trade school or whatever to be a mechanic or be a certified technician or whatever right um, mm-hmm. but there's also, you know, groups of Nazis, groups of hate groups and whatnot that meet online anonymously, which is a very bad thing. So, yeah, grow up internet, cut that hair.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. I included this next article, which is from the Hill. Not from the hill, but from the place. The 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 news outlet called the hill. From the hill has a different meaning for you and I, Charles. <laughs> anyway.
1: Um, I'm really not in love with the autoplay on this, which came back when I just went back to the article.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me about 10 minutes ago, and I had to mute the tab. Because like, as soon as I came back to it, it starts playing the stupid video again that's basically reading the article. So uh, this is a pretty simple statement here. Donald Trump has decided to back an effort to um, stay on Daylight Savings Time. So the time switch that, the time shift that we just made this past weekend, which has got all of us tired now. And we're probably just recovering from it. Uh, I guess he wants to stay at that time, right? Which is what a lot of people have suggested in the past. So I speculate that because Donald Trump supports it, it's never going to happen.
1: That would seem to... that. That's usually how this works. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of unfortunate. So Donald um, Trump
0: just killed our, our chances of getting off of or getting on, I suppose, to daylight savings time. To stop the stupid clock shifts. Because he's he's spoken out to support it.
1: <laughs> my only insistence is that if it stops, it stays stopped. The yes. The only thing that could be worse if it came back.
0: Yes. Right. And so, just
1: getting off of it's going to be obnoxious because hey, guess what? We've got to patch every system that has time zones on it.
0: Yeah, but I did that once before years ago yeah, when, they, when they when yes, they switched it, it was, was and
1: it was awful.
0: It was annoying, but I don't I don't know if I'd call it awful. Not from my perspective. Maybe from a you desktop perspective. What?
1: You didn't have legacy Windows 2000 servers, did not did you?
0: This was... If I remember that, the last time they changed Daylight Savings Time was in an era where Windows 2000 was still supported.
1: Yeah, not really. Or
0: was there another shift that I'm forgetting? After I left that two, place.
1: Oh, this was around 2008, I think. Okay. 2008, 2009, but no... Um, there were no official patches for Windows 2000 for changing the time zones. You there know what?
0: Were... You may be right. There was like a registry hack or something you could do to fix yeah, it. Yeah,
1: there was a hack, but there wasn't anything official from Microsoft. And just saying hypothetically, if, you know, your VoIP system was running on those. Oh, um, God. Sy- <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> hypothetically. One of the
0: most time sensitive things you could possibly have.
1: Not to mention, you know, having to patch the exchange servers, and then wondering: Should you run the tool that converts all the appointments so that maybe they'll be in the right time zone, no. or do you just tell people to double check your appointments yeah. because you can't be sure if it's going to do the right thing?
0: Right. Time is such a pain in the
1: butt. That's That's- if we're getting rid of it, great, fine. That's- it it simplifies our lives, but the transition period won't be won't be fun. Yeah.
0: Time is a pain in the butt. Being, being the guy who's had to manage our uh, uh, calendar and communication system, what's the word I'm looking for? Now, I can't remember. The, the, the industry term used for the, the, a collaboration suite, for, as being the guy who's managed our collaboration suite for the past 10 years, uh, which had to do a whole lot with calendaring. Um, I will say that calendars and time suck <laughs> when dealing oh, yeah. with it. Dealing with it from a technology perspective, they suck.
1: <laughs> no, daytime problems are the absolute worst to deal with.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, maybe daylight savings time will end, but not if Donald Trump supports it. <laughs> Anything he likes, the rest of the world hates. <laughs> all right what was the next we moved that it's one. Sorry. my my uh tabs are out of order here i didn't open this one let's open that up now no we have nginx to talk about first oh yeah let me open that one too boy i'm all out of order here
1: fun fact we don't actually know what we're doing what
0: are we doing why are we here what are we talking about?
1: Okay. Mm.
0: So, this news came out just like yesterday? Day before? What's the date on the article? Oh, this is actually from NGINX, this article. That's good.
1: March 11th. Uh, this was yeah Monday.
0: Monday. Apparently, F5 is uh, buying NGINX. So, anyone who's unfamiliar with F5... Most people in IT probably know, but Charles had to ask me who they were this, at the beginning of the show. No, because no, he just... I said they're a
1: load balancer, folks, right? Okay,
0: you had to verify. How's that? You had to verify with me who they were. Uh, yeah, so F5 makes primarily load balancers and web application firewalls. From what I remember from the sales pitch that we got when we were evaluating who we were going to use as a load balancer, uh, the package that we chose when we did not choose an F5 was NGINX+. Plus. Because it was an open source and uh, software-based solution instead of an appliance-based solution. And we liked it better. We liked its its flexibility. Primarily, we liked its cost. It was significantly cheaper than an F5. Um, and it has served us pretty well for the past three years, wouldn't you say? It's got a quirk I'm or two. Pleased. It's got a quirk or two, fine. but it's been pretty good. It's doing a good job. Yeah, yeah, it's working pretty well. In fact, just this morning, I had turned off the primary so I could move it to a different VM cluster, and uh, I don't think anybody noticed because it failed over to the secondary, and off we went. So that's uh, the, the mark of a decently designed load balancer is when you can take one out ah. of service and the other picks up, and nobody notices. Nagios Unless,
1: didn't even twitch.
0: Nagios didn't even twitch. That's because I scheduled downtime for the, uh, the primary. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have twitched when the primary went offline. Anyway, well. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I can speculate as to what this is going to mean for NGINX or for F5, but basically the gist of it is that F5 sees this as a step into better providing a cloud software-based load balancer. So, and I would agree, NGINX is a great, easy to deploy and lightweight load balancer to run in containers or on your cloud services or on bare metal or on a VM on your on-premises infrastructure. So, yeah, it's good software.
1: I do wonder what this means long-term for Apache. Um,
0: Yeah, so the other thing that Nginx does, other than load balancing and proxying, is it'll serve as a web server. So that is a good point.
1: I mean, our test environments... Like, our containerized test environments just use straight Nginx. We don't bother with, bother with Apache at all. Uh, there's no... At this point, I think we're mainly running Apache out of habit.
0: Apache, I feel like, is a, uh, a software package that is slowly dying off. I think there are lighter weight solutions to what Apache does. And as we're moving to things that are better served by a proxy than a full-on web server, things like Nginx make more sense, right? So how many applications do you know that are running in like this lightweight application-specific web service that all you really need is something robust in front of it to terminate SSL sessions and pass the traffic to the back end? Mm -hmm. Nginx is perfect for that. Like it absolutely is. perfect. It does a really uh, great job of it.
1: You know, you can even just you know, and especially now with PHP FPM, so alright, you've seen you know, you've split out the traditional, you know, Apache PHP integration. Apache's just hitting a proxy that effectively hitting a po- proxy just happens to be PHP. So you can very easily just swap in Nginx instead. Right. And get right. The same result.
0: We've had a case or two that I can think of Uh, in the services that we run, um, where there's like Tomcat or something that's actually running the web server, and because we didn't want that directly accessible from the world, there's an Apache service running in front of that, proxying to it, Uh, and this is before we were running a larger uh, load balancer or uh, proxy setup, this is from a couple of years ago, and then when Mm -hmm. we started doing proxying with NGINX, we put that in front of that mess. So it's yeah. like layer yeah. upon layer upon
1: layer. <laughs> we have a node. We have a node app that's being run that way. Yeah. Um, right.
2: Yeah.
0: So yeah. Guess we'll see where that goes. I want to read more into this. I haven't had a chance to yet. Uh, we added this kind of last minute, even though we fully intended to talk about it. We just forgot about it until we were about to go live. <laughs> Current uh, Iron Sisadmin, right? And our last news article for the night. You may remember, you were here that night, weren't you, Charles? It was Jason. I wasn't. wasn't yeah. When we talked about
1: I know. I think one who added it, yeah.
0: Quadriga CX Quadrig, Quadriga Trod Yeah, that that Canadian exchange that the uh, the owner passed away, taking the keys to the kingdom with him because uh, they were on his encrypted laptop, I guess. Um, the plot thickens, and uh, did, did you read through this article? Uh, Jason gave it to us just before he hopped on his freaking airplane. So
1: yeah, <laughs> oops, we gave it away. He's on an airplane. Um, I, I said that already. <laughs> I guess that he. I guess that uh, they were finally able to access the wallet, but there are no there are no coins in the wallet, and furthermore, there seem to be other accounts that you know undocumented accounts that were moving moving money around. That's
0: great. So they did get access to the wallets now, huh?
1: Uh, yeah. The wallets have been
0: found to be empty. That's the first statement in this article. Holy crap. Uh, so there's uh,
1: 137 million US that's uh, unaccounted for.
0: Wow. Isn't the point of... Uh, or one of the points of this distributed ledger system that, that Bitcoin runs on that you can see where these things went?
1: Uh ostensibly, yes. I am not a Bitcoin expert, but I, mean, I think that's kind of the whole idea.
0: So they can see that they move, they don't know who owns the destination wallets, perhaps. Maybe that's it.
1: Yeah, that's a problem. Um, Sorry,
0: I'm just trying to skim the article and see if they, they elaborate on that. But
1: and the fact that the money disappeared before he died, certainly... Um, yeah. There are, there are plenty of rumors current on the internet. I won't repeat them, but um, they could certainly be Googled about what the true state of affairs might be, and this would seem to lend credence to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we had talked about that before the show when we first talked about this article, and we opted not to spread the rumors... Which I think is a good choice until there's something to back them. But, yeah, I mean, you guys can fill in the blanks there. Money vanishes. CEO, CEO or whoever this guy was dies or p- reportedly dies. This is like the makings of a bank heist film.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, this was pretty good when, uh, when it was the Italian job in 2003. <laughs> it's a fun movie. Heard yeah. it here for...
0: Yeah, I don't yeah. know that I've seen that one. I'll have to look it up. One of the the many interests that Charles and I share is an interest in in you, arguably poor movies. Yeah,
1: but this is actually good. <laughs> it's
0: actually good. Okay, so it doesn't
1: qualify. This actually, this is actually good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love a good B movie, and Charles loves them even more than I do.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes you want to see trash.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's fun to just sit down and make fun of a movie. And you can't make fun of a high-quality movie. I mean, I can, but my wife gets mad at me. Mm. (laughs) Too much Mystery Science Theater 3000 as a kid. All right, so yeah, the plot thickens. And I think that closes the news?
1: That closes the news. That
0: closes the news, okay. So yeah, things are a little confused because we have two things you might think are news articles that we're not talking about as news and in fact are going to be talked about later. <laughs> that's the sort of that's the level of organization we have for tonight's show. All right, so I don't know that we have any announcements for tonight. I'm good. Um I re- I realized this afternoon as I was leaving the office that uh two weeks ago when we recorded last, I forgot to plug my coworkers AWS meetup, which is happening tonight. So Ooh. if you're in the Lehigh Valley and you want to rush out the door right now, you could still make it to the meetup before it ends, which I think is scheduled for eight o'clock, and it's now seven fifty four. So uh yeah, go. Um maybe not so there's a uh um there's a meetup site for it i'll i'll include it in the show notes i'll have to go look it up so that if you guys want to be notified when the lehigh valley aws meetup is happening you can do so via meetups because he's been pretty good about updating that so i'll put that in there somewhere Uh, We didn't really get any reviews other than a comment on YouTube congratulating us for getting enough subscribers to get our custom URL, so thank you. Um, I could look up who that was. Give me a sec. Trooper Ish, who is also in our chat at the moment. Hi. Hi. So yeah, that's about all we have for reviews. I did uh, get a chance to check on iTunes. I did get a chance to check on comments on our webpage. Uh, the only comment we got on our webpage was a reference to Frizz's hair, which I think may have been from Danny.
1: <laughs> that kind of sounds like Danny.
0: It does, it does. Especially since when he left the show uh, last week, two weeks ago, he made comment that he was going to go to our webpage and leave a comment. So, I think that was him, whoever it was, they didn't leave a valid name, so that could have easily been him. So yeah, uh, if you want to review the show, uh, do so via iTunes or I guess any of the other platforms that we're on that allows you to leave reviews, although none of them seem to notify us when people leave re- leave reviews. So I'm sorry if we miss your review, <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> All right, so got anything cool going on, Charles? Any neat projects?
1: I'm going on vacation, and thank God, um, that's good. Actually, I will say, a cool little thing we did is um, we were able to do a quick little integration with Twilio, um, you know, just cloud-based telephony, and we built a plugin just to add a REST endpoint on our health center's website so that they could send a bunch of text messages to students because we were doing a vaccination campaign. Yeah. And, that, and that was a quick little project that we did with our colleagues in communications. And, you know, it's it was fun to kind of quickly build a thing and meet that you know, we've gone to the point where, you know, 10 years ago, that kind of project would have entailed all kinds of things yeah like
0: budget and like an sms gateway and yeah all kinds Uh, of crazy
1: nope this was here let me wire up wire a couple of uh rest endpoints together all right we're done Pretty cool. Uh, I, can, that was fun.
0: I can remember the days uh, back when I was working for that web host I used to work for, <clears throat> where it was like, customer asked us, hey, can we have our website send out SMS for this or that? I mean, these were like car dealerships we were dealing with. So you could imagine what they were trying to SMS people. Come buy cars. So, you know, it made you feel dirty. But luckily, the price point was too high because there was like, oh, you need an SMS gateway and you need this, you need that. And everyone balked at the price. Well, Nowadays, you just bring in a VoIP service that's like cloud based and free you're not,
1: you're not even paying like a penny a text message yeah,
0: practically free. How's that? yeah, interesting times we live in unfortunately the sometimes with how cheap things are getting, it lowers the bar of entry for bad guys too, so that's yeah. like that's a that's a valid thing, right. And speaking of paying for things, I suppose we could talk about this uh, article about um, Picasa. You, yeah. you had you had some some feelings about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's going to be linked in the show notes. Um, it's basically this guy's blog entry that had been had been linked from Slashdot, and it's basically he's talking about how a number of uh, so Picasa, which is was a photo hosting site which Google bought up years ago, and they linked into Google Plus, right? So uh, I never used Picasa directly. I want to say that parts of Picasa became Google Photos, which I do use. So maybe I use Picasa, but not in the same way he's describing. Basically, Picasa was a service that you could, like, have albums on your machine, and they would synchronize to the cloud service Picasa. And then you could link them out to social networking or wherever you wanted to. I mean, just imagine like the usual image hosting dilemma that we had before it was so easy to image host on just about any social network on the planet. You know, if you wanted to write a blog article and you wanted a picture in that blog article, you'd write up the article and then you'd have to link the pictures to somewhere because the platform you're blogging on may or may not actually let you just upload the image. Well, now that's all a solved problem with things like WordPress. Unfortunately, I don't think it's solved in Drupal yet.
1: <laughs> but even then, um, I, I still haven't seen a WordPress derived solution that quite gives me the experience that you get with Flickr, you know, with the easy taxonomy, the integrated mapping, and just the nice, clean presentation.
0: Yeah, so primarily what I use uh, when I upload an image to a blog article, it's really like the picture is just there to draw in a reader, right? Usually it's like the header or whatever, or maybe it's a picture to illustrate a thing I'm describing. I don't need a whole lot around it. I just need a place to put the picture, right? Right. Which is exactly what WordPress's file uploads is good for,
1: right? So like here's a use case that I had. So... uh... Last October, United Conference, web, web developer conference out in Sacramento, and I took the train out, which was three nights and going through some pretty spectacular scenery in Colorado and Utah in particular. Yeah. I took, like, probably, well, don't need to estimate. Um, we'll find
0: out the actual number.
1: Excuse me. Yes, uh. Over the course of that trip, which also included a side jaunt up the coast to Portland, um, I took I took 238 pictures that I wound up actually keeping. Um, and, you know, it's about a gig of data. Yeah. So, obviously, a lot of that's just so, you know, I upload the whole thing to Flickr. So I could share it out. You know, I could email it to my parents, share it on Facebook, tweet it. I was like, you know, here's all my pictures because, you know, I'm... You know, for any blog write up, you know, I'm not gonna do more post more in a couple of them, but yeah, it's it nice to have a place to be able to say, you know, here's the album, here's contextually all the stuff. Maybe you'll be more interested in one of these pictures that I didn't call attention to otherwise.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so I, I like
1: that. Capability. I,
0: I do the same thing with Google Photos. I don't know if you've used Google I'm Photos. I, I what's yeah. that? Sorry, I I, I know you're board. an Android user, so you may have you may have had to turn off Google Photos in order to not be using it.
1: I think it's on and I'm ignoring it because uh, all my photos sync to my private NextCloud.
0: Right. So I was doing that for a while, too, until I stopped using NextCloud. Um, I pretty much, a couple of years ago, just decided to simplify my life and bought into the Google e- Google ecosystem. And I pay, I pay Google like a dollar and a half a month for enough data to... Um, Wow, saying the word Google has triggered my tablet. No, the the the, the tablet, which is the soundboard for the podcast, <laughs> just got triggered by saying the word. I guess mean, I can't say that word anymore. Okay, so um, anyway, I can share photo albums, I can organize my pictures, whatever, on Google Photos, which is good. Watching the tablet closely now, it's it's listening. Um, So anyway, back to the point though, Um, Picasso eventually got roped into Google Plus, which was you know when Google was still trying to fight Facebook. Google Plus is now a service that either is or is going, either is dead or is going away. Um, I forget what the kill date was, but I think it's I think it's on its way out. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the death of Google Plus according to this blog article anyway, comes the death of all of the photo albums that were on it. And this guy's speculating that, like, what does he say? Hundreds of thousands of links all over the internet. It's basically links to photos that are hosted on Picasa are going to just cease to function. Which, um, from my perspective, brings up an interesting point. When you have a central hub of content, like Picasa, or Google Photos, or whatever. A place, Amazon, right? I mean, just imagine, I know this is unlikely, but I'm just saying, like hypothetically. Imagine Amazon says, that S3 service, we just don't like it anymore. We're gonna stop doing that. All of your data that's on S3, find new homes for it, right? And then they just turn the service off. Imagine the amount of like content hubs or content CDNs or whatever that are depending on Amazon S3. All of a sudden they're all broken. Well, that's kind of a larger scale of what this guy is referring to, right? Mm-hmm. You've got images online, they're on Picasa, they're in these Google Plus albums, you've linked them to your website or to wherever you shared your pictures. Um, now they're just going to go away. So now you've either got to go track down every place you've ever linked to your your Picasa or Google Plus uh, photo albums for content and fix the links, or they're just going to show broken images. Now, I've, I've run into this with site migrations, right? So I, my oh, yeah. my websites have gone from, like, custom-written HTML to um, a platform called... S- Jason's screaming at his phone right now because he's listening to us. Uh, what was it called? Symphony? No, not Symphony. He'll tell me later. Uh, it was a blogging platform that was, like, Something like a competitor WordPress. Then I went to Drupal, then I went to WordPress, so like throughout every one of these things, I've had to try to maintain image links because of what I was describing before, where it's like my custom written thing, I was using, uh, there used to be this thing called Gallery, written in PHP. That was what I used Mm -hmm. to host all my images. When I stopped using that, all my image links broke, and I had to like replicate the image structure so I didn't have to (laughs) redo all my image links, and then you know, each time I migrated, those links had changed slightly, or I had to try to make that work. Um, anyway, I'm rambling. You had another well, viewpoint on this whole thing, so do you want to well, go into? Well,
1: yeah. I mean, the, the crucial difference between the S3 hypothetical is that you're actually paying for it. Um, what's that? Right. You know, problem with so many of these free image hosts is. You're not paying for it. So they're not really making any money off of you. Meanwhile, they're still maintaining what is at this point probably probably a legacy service. Um you you saw this with Flickr. You know, it's not just Google, Flickr with Flickr saying last year, you know, because for a while there, you know, Flickr had the paid tier and had the free tier. And if the free tier you could upload however much you wanted, but your images wouldn't display bigger than, I think it was like 1024 by 768. And then...
0: Which is probably fine. Yeah, eh,
1: it is and it isn't.
0: I mean, depending, right? If you're just right. like linking well, this in a blog post, that's plenty. Yeah.
1: But then a couple of years ago, they took that limit away. They'd always stored the full version and now they actually showed it. So that limit was gone. And so you got certain, you got certain nice things, I guess, if you were pro, but the free tier was effectively unlimited if you were doing what I was doing. And obviously that was unsustainable. So then Flickr's like, well, you know, we're going to have to make some money off of this. Or we're going to go away. And, right. and so Flickr said, look, if you don't go pro, we're going to cut, we're going to limit the free free accounts to like a thousand images. And we're going to delete the rest. Wow. Cue shouting. Now, oh my god,
0: my data's gonna be deleted.
1: Now now what's interesting is that we've hit the deadline for we've hit the original deadline for stuff being deleted, and I don't believe anything's been deleted. But you know, it led me to think, well, what's this worth to me? And I did go pro for a year just because I at the time didn't wasn't ready to address what I want to do because I worked out what it would cost to dump everything on, say, an S3 bucket instead. Right. And determined that, you know, it was compared to what it would cost to store and probably do some display, um, what Flickr was charging me would be competitive. Yeah. And I wouldn't have to recreate all the things I mentioned earlier, you know, the taxonomy and tooling and mapping, geolocation, all that stuff. I mean, this, this isn't free, right? you know you're not paying but you're not paying anything but it's not free
2: right yeah
0: it, it costs flickr something i mean i i went through a similar thing so um as many of our listeners know and as you know i used to run all of my websites out of a server in my basement right had a commercial cable modem ran it that way when i started the podcast i did the same thing with that um including all of the audio files for the episodes, right? They were hosted on my cable modem, on my server, in my basement. Uh, When we got big enough that we got more than a couple downloads, um, I didn't have necessarily a bandwidth problem. Like, it wasn't like my cable modem was brought to its knees. But people started complaining that since some of our episodes get kind of long and they're a couple hundred meg, they're just taking a long time to download. So I decided to move them to S3. So I started putting them on S3, and I always said that once S3 got expensive enough that it paid me to run on a service like Libsyn that's a podcast hosting service, I would switch. Well, I had overestimated the price of Libsyn, and I was paying like twice as much for S3 as I could have been for Libsyn, so when I figured that out, I very quickly switched us to Libsyn. S3 is not as cheap as you think, to your point from before you know if you're hosting a bunch of images there uh, it's not just the data that you have to think about it's all the access and everything so hosting a podcast on s3 was actually not as cheap as i thought it was going to be because of the downloads like that's i mean that's the whole point right people need to be able to download this data it's not just for for archival storage now s3 may be cheap for that because you're not accessing the data but uh Yeah. yeah it didn't turn out to be cheap for podcast hosting that's for sure so anyway um, yeah, so uh, links to Picasa slash Google Plus albums are gonna go away, and this guy, Philip Greenspun, Greenspun, is upset about it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's upsetting, but I think it, you know, you need to ask yourself, um, how much does your data matter to you, and what steps are you taking to ensure that it's gonna be okay it doesn't necessarily mean self-host but right it means have plan have a plan and you know maybe the other thing you know you brought this up and i thought about it you know a question of hunting down broken links um you know something i do a lot of is quality assurance you know so we have various tools that we use to crawl the web presence looking for things like broken links and I think there are free solutions out there, and that sort of thing. Well, you know, point one of those tools at your own website. You get an inventory of everything you've linked to, and at the very least, when it breaks, you'll know.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I guess the uh, the bottom line there, when it comes to you know the argument of where is Picasso going, where is the, where the Google Plus albums going, you're not paying for it. If you want a service you can count on, if you want a service that has some resiliency, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. And, I mean, that's, believe me, I know the argument. I, I know the, the, the issue, right? I've always been the sort of guy who will do it as cheaply as possible and mm-hmm. he'll do it himself and put the sweat equity in instead, instead of actually spending money on, on a thing. It's just the way I was raised. It's the way I am. Sometimes it pays to pay someone to host your data. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it pays to pay for a service. That's all there is to it.
1: You know, I started black, you know, I started backing, you know, I have a, you know, I have a NAS and I started backing up to Amazon Glacier. There were plenty of other options. Glacier costs me 10 bucks a month. Yeah. Right. And it, it was not quite fire and forget, but pretty close.
0: <clears throat> I have a bunch of media you know, everyone has their DVD and music collection, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a long time ago, I started the effort of digitizing all of it that I cared about, so that I could do things like copy it to my phone and play MP3s instead of having to lug a CD around with me. And then Google Music came along, and I was able to synchronize it to a cloud service. Same deal with DVDs, right? I don't, I, I don't put a DVD into a DVD player anymore. I copy it to digital, and I put it onto a Plex server in my basement. I know you do a similar thing. And I basically run my own little video on demand service for my own personal use. Um, I've thought about backing those movies up to Glacier Mm -hmm. because there's like probably a terabyte of data at this point that took me countless hours to copy. Like, that wasn't free. (laughs) Yeah. If I were to, uh, yeah, I've got DVDs of all of them sitting in the closet, literally behind this machine that I'm podcasting on. There's a closet with boxes of DVDs in it, like just boxes of hundreds of DVDs, most of which I've digitized at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. If I were to do it again, it would take me days.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's days, weeks.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, Right. I mean, there are times that I'll be like, oh, there's these movies I forgot about, and I'll put a stack of them on this desk, and I'll be like working or whatever and popping DVDs in and letting them copy and continuing to do my thing. Um, If I were to have to redo all of that, it would take some time. So Mm. yeah, I've I've thought about the idea of copying all that up to S3 and throwing it into Glacier just in case. The question would be, how much would it cost me to get back out if that thing
1: died? Oh, all the money. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, it would be a lot of money to get it back out. So, anyway, there's people that host Plex in the cloud. You know, they'll, they'll put the data on S3, and uh, they'll run Plex on, like, EC2 or something, or I don't know what the proper way to do this is. But there's people who do it that way, and they just stream from the cloud. They don't stream from a local Plex server. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, phenomenon or not, but I have a friend who does it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So, I don't know what the legalities of that are. So, I had one other quick thing to chat about, and this is just a follow-up from last week. So, last week we talked about this this stupid Momo, Momo challenge, which had really just hit my radar the day we were recording. Sorry, two weeks ago. And I had mentioned that I had put a couple hours of research into this because, I mean... Charles, you didn't hear all this, and you're unfamiliar with what the hell Momo is you mentioned before the show. I don't know if you.
1: I'm going to be staring blankly into space during this segment.
0: Okay, so a very quick recap. Momo, or the Momo Challenge, was this hype-fueled thing that hit social, net, social media about two weeks ago, at least in the U.S. Apparently it's been going on for longer in the EU, um, or in the U.K., I guess that's the same thing. Whatever. Um,
1: not for much longer. Not
0: for much longer, right? Um, uh, uh, two two weeks ago, it started hitting my Facebook feed. Started hitting a few other social outlets that I that I follow. That oh my god, watch your kids! Your kids are gonna get convinced to kill themselves by this mythical thing called Momo. That's gonna it's gonna interact with your kids and it's gonna. It's going to tell them to do bad things. And then, I mean, there's kids have died. Did you know kids have died? Kids have died because of this. And I started doing some research because, you know, I've got kids. They're on the Internet. And this is like a valid concern. Right. And, of course, everybody's panicked about it. So it must be true. Right. So I started doing some reading and it turns out. There's no evidence that anyone has died. There's no evidence that anyone has killed themselves. There's no evidence that anyone has even hurt themselves as a in 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 response to the Momo challenge. And Charles, uh, if you want more detail, just listen to last week's show or just Google the word Momo. You'll find all kinds of stuff. Um, it was all a hoax. And there's now there's a link in the show notes to a uh, New York Times article that describes this. And I swear. That there was a that there was a mention in this article about um, the so I mentioned last week that Momo the the imagery of of Momo came from an artist's sculpture, right? It turns out that it was he's like a special effects artist, and he made this thing um, on commission for somebody, and he's actually destroyed it now because of the the world's reaction to this imagery. Uh, he he decided that the um that there was no reason for it for it to still exist so in order to actually help children sleep better at night which is the quote that i read which i swore was in this article but i can't find now Uh, if i can find it i'll add it to the show notes later uh he said to help the children of the world sleep better at night he's destroyed the (laughs) the freaking sculpture (laughs) Which I thought was pretty cool. He put all that work into making the thing, and then he destroyed it just because of this stupid hype. But anyway, uh, rest better at night, folks. Momo, as we speculated two weeks ago, was never really a threat. And the uh, the only problem was the problem we created, which was by spreading the word of this silly hoax and making people panic. That's what it comes down to. And that, I think, is all I'm going to say about Momo, because it's not worth talking about anymore. It was a stupid hoax, and the more we talk about it, the more credibility it gets. Right? Right. That's how hype works. So, I think we can finally get into the main topic. Woohoo! Okay, I've got like a full-on actual IT-related topic to talk about tonight. Isn't that cool, considering we're an IT podcast and all? (laughs) So, um, I was thinking about topics, and I couldn't remember if we had ever covered this before. So, folks, if this is a repeat, I couldn't find proof that it was. Charles thinks it is.
1: (laughs) I talk about this topic so often that I mean God it, could, knows.
0: it just blurs together different. right so we're going to talk about change management so we've got these services we run as sysadmins and web people web developers I don't know what what what's the politically correct term to to, to describe what you do Charles
1: If web. I knew I'd change my job title <laughs> um
0: So we run these services, um, whether they're websites or whether they're payment terminals or whether they're, you know, services that make your MRI machines in hospitals work or, you know, whatever, varying levels of importance. Maybe it's just that you don't want your blog to go down. Maybe it's life-threatening stuff. Um, We're dependent on to make this stuff happen, make this stuff work, make it dependable. But we're also dependent on to keep it secure or to keep it up to date. And um, in order to do that, you need to plan pretty thoroughly when it is that you're going to perform updates, when it is that you're going to make changes, and that's what change management is all about. Now, change management is just sort of the current industry term for this. Um, it's sort of a, I don't know when it came about, but I learned about it when I started learning more about Agile and DevOps. Um, We always used to call it scheduled maintenance or maintenance windows or just general systems maintenance or update windows, things like that. Uh, But change management is sort of the the accepted term for it nowadays. Uh, So I thought we would just chat a little bit about how to responsibly manage change in your environment, which is what change management is all about. So um, at work, and Charles, you, you get to benefit from this, um I run what you could call our change management process. And it's it's really just a weekly meeting where we talk about things that we plan to change and when we're going to do them. <laughs> so Yeah. Every service, every group of people that are responsible for a service have sort of their own processes. I know you're very detail oriented, Charles. Um some other groups on campus are a little little, little looser with it. Um it's not my job to manage the minutiae. I depend on service owners to deal with, you know, how they're going to make this stuff happen. I just make um, sure the meeting happens and I make sure we talk about it and we cover all the the various pieces. So well, that's what I meant by in charge of.
1: <laughs> you know, you, you've hit on what is, what can be the, a real weakness in any um, change management process. Because as you say, you, you really rely on the, so you rely on the stakeholders um, bringing their changes to the meeting and right. discussing ahead of time. So you rely on them making, because obviously, that's the thing. There are changes being made that we don't necessarily um, discuss with people outside of our own teams. I mean, there are things that we may have logged somewhere, but at this point it's the change management meeting for anything that we think could cause a service interruption. Right. But ultimately it's every team is judging whether or not that's the case. And sometimes there are whole categories of changes that we've just determined preemptively. Those aren't service affecting. You can do them whenever you don't need to tell anybody. Right. But there's a lot of gray area in there. Um, and as always if nothing breaks you no know, no harm no foul but people can get kind of testy when stuff breaks and it's like wait what did you change why why didn't we know right. like well it's fine
0: right the 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 gray area is kind of a problem and sometimes you don't know if your change is going to affect somebody else in some minuscule way that turns into a big problem or a small problem right Mm-hmm. So um, there, there is a line there. There's a line, you know, as to where it is that you need to come front and say this is a, this is a change that's occurring. Um, and every organization probably draws that line at a different place. Um, but I, I can say that there are cases where, and this has happened to us recently, <laughs> where you get woken up by your pager or by, you know, SMS alerts or whatever.
1: They talk to speak. <laughs>
0: and even, even though it was a very brief thing that occurred, right? So monitoring systems don't react immediately to outages sometimes. They react relatively quickly. And they don't react immediately to recoveries because monitoring systems do things like periodically check, right? Maybe they check every five minutes. Maybe they check every minute. Maybe they check every 15 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So if I get woken up to a dozen pages of a bunch of core services that are all of a sudden unreachable, that's a problem. I get out of bed, I turn on my laptop, and if by the time I turn on my laptop and get my VPN fired up and I get into the monitoring system to see what the hell's going on, they've all recovered, I'm grouchy. Yeah. <laughs> and the last thing you want is a grouchy senior sysadmin, right? Grouchy, everyone,
1: <laughs> really. But, yeah, and, you know, the ideal, of course, is that stuff doesn't break during the day in the middle of the night. I mean, obviously things will break. But, you know, if you have a robust change management process, at least nothing should be breaking because of any purposeful action by anyone on the team.
0: Right. And... And I guess the the point I was trying to make earlier was, um, even things that aren't breaking things, even things that aren't causing a major outage, even things that aren't necessarily interrupting service, may affect things downstream from whatever you're changing, right? So uh, say I run a service which produces an API, and you have a web service or something that consumes that API and I make an update without telling you, and that update very slightly changes the way the API operates. Maybe I didn't know, right? But mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't tell you that it was going to happen because I'm like, oh, this isn't going to affect service. And now your application breaks and you don't know why because my this API had, changed.
1: This literally happened to us. Um, oh, I'm sure it happens all the time. <laughs> I think the fact, well, this particular incident, I remember very specifically, um, Gravatar changed the way its API handled certain edge cases and it broke the display of numerous user profile photos in Moodle.
0: Right. Right. That so, was really cool. So, I mean, that's, that. that's like a perfect example. Um, Gravatar changed something. Maybe they released a, an update saying that it was going to happen. Maybe they didn't. Maybe you missed it. Maybe it was in a newsletter you don't subscribe to. You're like, who knows? Mm-hmm. But, the point is it changed and you didn't know it and all of a sudden stuff broke and that turns into a needle in a haystack. What, what happened? Why does, why is this thing that has worked forever broken? We haven't changed anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How many times have I heard that? We didn't change anything. (laughs) Nothing's different.
1: And yet things are different. So
0: things are somehow different.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And (sighs) yeah it's getting a little away from change management but right so so two things on that right first of all if you if you own a service you aren't you don't necessarily know how people use your service you think you do right. but you might not which is why you, you know best practices are you have a you, know, you have first of all you have a controlled change management process so that you know what you've changed And so that it's possible for you to communicate to people who use your service, what you changed, because it's, you know, again, it's possible. You're going to break their workflow in some way that you weren't even anticipating. Right. Other is having to recognize as part of your change management process that you own and provide a lot of services, but it's 2019. You are also, you are the consumer in a lot of these cases. Um, Sometimes it takes an Amazon outage to find out what services you depend on that themselves have Amazon dependencies.
0: Exactly. Yeah, like that's never happened, right?
1: <laughs> um, you know, we all remember the great S three outage. What was that twenty seventeen?
0: Yeah, I think it was about two years ago.
1: It time, it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Made for a fun afternoon, but <laughs> yes, so, yes, it did. <laughs> you know, so you have to start. And so, what do you do? As you say, do you start subscribing to, you know, you start looking for? You know, we've taken something of a draconian approach. You know, we've got some Slack channels now. They're basically just get, getting feeds from, you know, the Stas APIs of various external services, so that we know when stuff goes down.
0: Right. Not a bad idea.
1: Oh, it spams the hell out of it, though. I bet. You know, you never believe yeah. how. You find as some of these services have. But, you know, they're they're part of their change management is communicating those outages.
0: Right, right. So I guess uh, a good thing we could probably try to overview is just sort of the, maybe some some tried and true successful components of a good change management uh, system. And I'm not going to say that we have it all figured out, but we do have some experience in the matter, right? I mean, um, thanks. For, for as long, so at my last job, which is 10 years ago, our change management policy was Windows updates happen on Saturdays. <laughs> and that was it. There was no real, there was no other thing. It was wait until shit breaks and fix it. <laughs> when I came to our current employer, um, there was already in place sort of a, a weekly... They called it the network meeting, which has evolved over time into what we now call our uh, network maintenance meeting, uh, which is what you'd call our change management meeting. Um, So really a good first step to any sort of change management board or change management um, meeting is to meet, (laughs) is to, to get people together that run services that are dependent that your organization is dependent on and get them together and just start talking about you know when when is when are all the linux servers going to get updated uh when uh, when is apache updated when is when is wordpress updated when do patches get applied um is that going to cause an outage for this or for that and what's dependent on it um mm-hmm. and what about all that network gear you know when when are you guys applying updates to that or do you need to replace hardware that sort of thing Um, So I guess that's really a good step one, and uh, that was sort of already in place uh, when I inherited (laughs) the uh, uh, change management where we are. Um, I guess to go along with that is good documentation. You know, document what you're changing, when you're changing it, why you're changing it. Um, Document the results of how the change went. Um, I don't know you're you're better at documentation than me. do you want to elaborate a little more on how you guys manage well, this?
1: yeah I mean we have effectively i mean there's two types of documentation here. one is I suppose you what might call your stateful documentation or your more permanent documentation, which is your internal stuff on this is how we configure a web server. This is how the the these are the endpoints of this api this is this is our process for renewing certs. This is our process for configuring SSL, uh, TLS. Um,
0: yeah, you can't call it SSL support- anymore.
1: I know. And of course, you have to keep that documentation up to date. Um, the other type of documentation is the kind of more your you know, change documentation, which probably in a separate system, which is where you make a note that, hey, on this day we did these things. And you know you have that, so on the one hand, other people can be aware of what you're doing and also for your own benefit. Um, let's say you make a configuration change and then a few days later, your monitoring and quality assurance tools make it clear that you broke a whole bunch of stuff. Well, what did we change three days ago? Right. That, we changed that. Um, sidebar: It's amazing what um, two characters in an Apache config file can accomplish.
0: Oh, absolutely!
1: Or it's amazing!
0: It's amazing what one character in a DD command can accomplish.
1: Oh, that's! Uh, I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> I uh,
0: have uh, talked about it openly on this show. It's it's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. So those are both important types of documentation. Um, they don't do the same thing, but they do complement each other. Right. You know, one says where you are, and the other, at some level, is saying how you got there. If your internal documentation has revision history, that's even better. Then you can see how things were.
0: Right, right. So there's th- this whole conversation is reminding me of a scene from the book, The Phoenix Project. And, yes. Uh, I know you've read it as well. Um, where things are just a shambles. When what was his name? Bill, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Bill, the the IT director, uh, had had co- had sort of come into a role as the guy running IT, and things are just a shambles. And really, the whole book is about how he organizes stuff and how he gets them into a better place. And part of that is by implementing change management. That's really and, a
1: heroic tale about bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So I mean it's I'm I'm not going to I it's been a year maybe two since I read the book so I don't know if I can recall it um word for word but I I do remember it as a very well narrated and yet still compelling to read
1: <laughs> I think anybody who is do I think anybody who's working in this space defined broadly right probably read the Phoenix Project yes Just, Even if you don't even if you don't come away agreeing with its solutions, um, it's I think it does a good job recapitulating the kinds of problems. Absolutely. The problem of we're making too many changes. We're being asked to do too many things. And to the extent that we are actually making changes, we're not doing a good enough job documenting what we did and how we did it. So we wind up having to repeat ourselves.
0: And that that brings up a good point. And it's this is illustrated in the book. Uh, It's also illustrated in my own personal experience in in running sort of a change management board or meeting. Um, There's pushback. People will complain about having to tell you what they're doing, which seems counterintuitive when really all you're trying to do is get everybody organized. Uh, but people think it's bureaucracy. People think that it's not worth the effort to document their changes. It's not worth telling people because it's not going to affect anything. It's going to be fine. Um,
1: so, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's
0: that's a valid problem.
1: Yeah, and I think it can almost feel like criticism. Right. But, like, no, we just... And for me, the eye-opening experience is when I... Uh, I think I was always fairly thorough, but the the eye-opening experience is when I transitioned out of my last job, which was a fairly... It was fairly gradual and not at all painful. You know, I, in over a period of two months, um, I was able to give that much notice. I gradually handed off responsibilities. But um, I was faced with the very unenviable task of, in some cases, documenting and explaining a service that, in some respects, I hadn't really touched in five years.
0: Right. Or there's services you may have inherited. I don't know if this was your case or not, but it was my case when I left my last job. Services that I inherited and I didn't even fully understand. Like I knew how to operate them. I knew how to keep them running. But there were bits that were still black magic.
1: Same. (laughs) And I to my success, you know, the person who's taking over some of these responsibilities. Yeah, I don't quite understand what these pieces do.
0: I don't fully I don't, understand this thing,
1: but basically, basically nobody left who does. Yeah. And I have no documentation to give you aside from this stuff I slapped together based on what I kind of remember. Yep. And I said, never again. I'm never putting myself in that position again. And I'm never going to put anyone else in that position again.
0: Yeah, and that's really a good stance to take. I mean, I, we're probably all guilty of it at some point in our careers, and there's probably lots of things that I manage today that are in here, and for those of you listening, I'm pointing at my head, um, that are in my head, but they're not written down. Um, and that that could be services that I built nine years ago, when I first started the role that I'm in, uh, that... I never thought to write down because it wasn't in the the purview of the role, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've always had a, had a uh, sort of a mandate to document things, but we haven't had a culture to do so, right? And that's changed over the years. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, write down your changes. Tell folks in your group about your changes that is folks that may depend on your services. And there may be folks who depend on your services that you don't know about.
1: That's the challenging piece for me. And this is something I've been wrestling with because I think that we are still operating in kind of that space where we think we know who's going to be affected by our changes. And like, there's a lot of tools out there and I've played with a couple of them that let you you know that you know these these online and you know, status pages of service offerings you know, where you can just indicate for any given service you know what its health is what upcoming maintenances there are and that's wide open and so people in the community can just go subscribe to alerts you know if they want information um, I think that's a really interesting model because, you know, it just, it ta- in some ways it takes the burden off of you for necessarily informing the right people, right. you know, and it also creates a, a place where you can do a standardized bit of change management documentation. It's like, we are changing this stuff and, you know, maybe there's a private link that has, you know, more details that are neither necessary nor appropriate for the public. We're actually describing the nuts and bolts of, well, we're, you know, we are enabling this cipher or whatever, you know, something that's. Right, right. I you know, but for the general public, like we are making a configuration change to the web server on these boxes.
0: Yeah. I think back to, and for all their faults, um, Jason and I have both talked about an ISP that we used to work for, uh, which had lots of problems. Not necessarily technical ones, but just people problems. It was a poorly run place. There were a lot of people that were just tough to get along with. Uh, but one of the things they had that I I always, to this day, I still like as a model for change management, is they had this ticketing system that was written in-house. And everything was logged in this thing. Whether it was um, internal... Uh, trouble ticketing, like inter- interdepartmental stuff, or public notification. And this thing would, you know, we, we were an ISP, right? We ran uh, uh, the backbone for cable providers. We ran the backbone for, like, hospitals, like, the sort of things you'd expect from an ISP. And so there, there'd be cases where our engineering group would be doing maintenance on, like, a cable UBR, right? Anyone who is not familiar with the UBR, it's the thing, it's like the head end, the thing that runs, the thing that makes a cable segment, uh, hmm. a region work. Um, if our engineering group is like, oh, we have to upgrade the thing or we have to replace it or whatever, right? That's maintenance. And those happened on certain days during the week. And you know, you'd go in and you'd make a new ticket and every single entry you made had a radio button next to it that said, is this public or private? Mm-hmm. Right, So I could, in a private notes, I could put things like technical details that the engineering team had given me or technical details about, you know, I, I was a level down. I wasn't an engineer. I was their network support. Yeah. Um, But like details about this or that or the other thing that were internal only would go there. But um, say it were an outage I was working on and I'm working with like fiber optic providers or whatever, and they're telling me when you know, the telephone pole that's down is going to be repaired, I would log a private note that says, you know, Choice One or whoever it was I'm working with, Verizon, says the, th- the, the, the line will be restored in X hours. And then I can make a very generic public entry that says something like, service is still out, we're working with our providers, Right. Right. And I Mm -hmm. thought that that worked out really well because when you logged into the system, it decided what level of access you had. If you were a customer, it would show you just the public entries. And if you were an employee, it would show you the private ones as well, right? So you get a full view of what's going on. Now, at a place like where we work, it's kind of overkill, right? I could still see the usefulness, but it's still like... um. How often would we use a thing like that? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Um and this is I actually I actually remember I showed you this application when we were first looking looking at ticketing systems. So you've seen it. I think you've uh-huh. seen it. And you remember uh-huh. it was it was kind of ugly, but it had the features. And the features what I liked.
1: Yeah, but nay, no, it was ugly as hell.
0: It was ugly as hell. It was a bunch of tables and it was written in Perl, man. Perl. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. No, and it's a good point, but obviously we don't have as many customers or as broad an impact as an ISP. But at the same time, right. we do have a fair number of transitory outages, and I think we probably don't see a lot of communications that those spawn, right? Um, you know, involving um, you know tier one support. No, I mean, happily, we don't, you know, we're not in a situation, uh, knock on wood, you know, where we're maintaining a lot of rickety systems and stuff goes down.
0: I've been there. I never want to go back.
1: No. But, <laughs> Nightmares. but, you know, just speaking hypothetically, if we were ever in a situation where that changed or maybe we're in a situation where we're changing a lot of stuff. You know, in some ways, we're coming off the end of a long sprint where, and we rebuilt a lot of things for high availability. Right. But we're probably going to start touching things again soon, and having a way to very easily indicate, ah, uh, yeah, this service, this service is intermittent. In other words, yeah, we broke stuff. Um, yep. You know, half of it's migrated, and half of it's not. Listen, um, I
0: I learned how to quickly type and spell the word intermittent when I worked at that ISP. So.
1: So disingenuous! It's such a lie. <laughs> what we're really saying is maybe it's up and maybe it's not, but we certainly don't know what's wrong with it. Um,
0: Services are intermittent. <laughs> I
1: don't know. It's on fire. Maybe it'll work. Um,
0: yeah, it may work oh. sometimes. Intermittent.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's during it's those you know those those peer periods when you're changing lots of stuff can be really tough because um, you just want to get it done. And right. don't want to have to take the time to stop. Like, why am I noting this change? It's going to change again in like a week. Well, one reason might or be... Or five minutes. You thought it was going to change in a week. But maybe it's not going to change for two months because your project gets interrupted by something else. Right. And then you're going to come back to that in two months and be like, huh, what state did I leave this in? What was well, I do? What is this... What's my name?
0: There's another perspective to this as well. Um, There are cases, especially in a panic situation where services are down and you're trying to restore service, where you're changing a lot of things in rapid succession. Mm -hmm. Right? And if you don't write those things down, there's a couple things that can happen. One, you may not remember the actual path to resolution. Yeah. You'll remember the last thing you changed. But if the thing you changed right before it or the before that or right before that is what led to the last thing fixing the problem, you may not have that documented. And yeah. that'll mean a few things. It'll mean, one, if you, if you take the time to write up an after-action report that says, this is how I fixed it, it may be inaccurate. And two, two years from now, if the problem occurs again, either in another system or the same system or whatever... Uh, you may either not accurately remember how you fixed it, which happens to me all the freaking time, or you you may your documentation may be wrong. You'll be like, oh well, I did this last time. It's right here in the document. I'll go do that again. You go do that again, and it doesn't fix the problem. And then you're right back where you were two years ago when you were in a panic situation.
1: Right, because like, okay, I tried A, I tried B, I tried C, I tried D. Hey, and after D, it started working again. Right. Possible it- thing okay, I did A, B, and C, and now I'm going to go get a staging environment together, and I'm going to start seeing how important those other changes were. Maybe they're relevant, and maybe they're not. Right.
0: It could be that changes A and D fix the problem, is my point. Yeah. You know? Yep. B and C might have been just complete BS that you tried and didn't help, but you have no idea that it didn't help because and, you're in a panic situation, and all you're worried about is fix the problem.
1: And because they're changes that are now undocumented... Um, they could independently cause problems down the road. Right. Because right. your system's in a current state. Yeah.
0: Then and they've this, done that. This brings up a, a slightly, I mean, it's not quite change management, but it is, but config management systems like tools like Puppet and whatnot really sort of help here because they enforce state. Um, I don't know if I want to go too deeply into this at this point, but it is is—it is something that's worth having on your radar uh, I don't care what tool you want to use chef puppet ansible I mean there's like a dozen of them out there. i think there there's a new one I recently heard about that I can't remember the name of this this space is changing frequently. puppet is one of the oldest puppet and chef um what was the other one from this era c f engine
1: yeah, maybe,
0: but I think so anyway um they're all they're all the way of of enforcing state. Um, and if you make your changes via a, a tool that enforces state, uh, it's almost self documenting. Almost. If you revision it in Git, like we do, then you could say it's kind of closer to self documenting because you can see all the changes as they happen,
1: right? You can see all the changes, but if there's some arcane change with an unhelpful right, right. commit message, um, yeah, it's, it still comes it, down to
0: what you're writing when you commit it to Git. <laughs>
1: Like one thing I like about the way we're managing this now, and just to go in a little more detail, we're using Puppet to manage the state of our Nginx Plus proxy. Right. So all the hosts are in there. Um, And so obviously to some extent that's self-documenting, but our workflow is when we make changes, um, there's a merge request, which provides the opportunity for at least a fairly brief discussion, you know, explanation of what this, is meant to accomplish
0: and it's not uncommon that that references a either a ticket in my the tracking system that my team uses rt or the tracking system your team uses uh Redmine.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, which again is for our own notes um right. so that we know why we did that because i don't know about anybody else but once i'm a couple of months removed from a project i'll remember broad strokes I mean, I'll know right. what we did, but I'm not going to remember the details, in part because I don't have to because I wrote it all down so right. that I didn't have to remember.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a time when I was younger and had a smaller network to manage where I kept it all in my head and that was fine because I was the guy running everything. I was the guy that fixed everything. I was the guy, or me and one other guy in, in most cases. Um so we each had our own special specialties and uh, you know if there was a Linux problem they'd come to me and I'd be like oh yeah I've seen this a dozen times and I'll go fix it again I didn't write it down I just did it because it was in my head as your environment gets more complex and as your your brain gets older that's harder to do mm-hmm. you know I've I can still depend on that to some extent but Man, the level of stuff that's in my head, some of it is just too complex to remember with, with fine detail, and mm. some of it's just too broad. There's just too many incidents that are piling up in my head. Like I, I could probably recall for you how to manage a QMail system, because that's what I did for years when I was in my last job, uh, but I couldn't recall it for you in detail, because it was 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, not, probably not well enough to actually to actually manage it.
0: Right. So like there was a point where I had built so many QMail systems and QMail is a relatively complex beast to build and run Uh, for anyone who's run QMail. You're probably cringing right now. Um, Charles, if you don't know what QMail is, it's basically uh, before there were
1: collaboration
0: suites. There was just pop IMAP SMTP, right? QMail was one of the services that would provide that.
1: I mean, Lotus Notes has been around an awful long time, but yes.
0: (laughs) Okay, so before mass, people were using collaboration suites. So, like, if you went to an ISP in the 90s and they gave you a mailbox and nothing else, no calendar, no, you know, document storage, just email, it was probably hosted on Qmail. It was, like, one of the most popular MTAs on the planet. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, In fact, I think their tagline for a long time was the second most popular MTA on the planet, and that was because SendMail was the most popular because it was packaged with every distribution of Linux ever. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. My point is, um, I could probably recall some of the common tasks I had to do with QMail. I could probably give you a general overview of how you had to build a QMail server. I could not do it from memory today like I could then. Right. So imagine you're managing a system that you don't touch often, but it's important. Write down the changes you made. Write down how you fix the problems, because there's a good chance you're going to encounter them again. And when you do, instead of having to pull it out of this meat in your head, you can pull it out of documentation that never changes and doesn't get, you know, changed with age like the stuff in your brain does.
1: Yeah. Or, you know... you know, we've, um, it's been an interesting experience over the last year. I think I've mentioned, you know, we have someone who's fairly new in our department and he's now taking over tasks that I used to do. Oh, right. Other people. We've, we've actually had an opportunity to test our documentation.
0: That's got to make it so much easier to hand off document or hand off services when it's like, oh yeah, it's all written down right there. Go read it and let me know if you have questions.
1: Pretty much. Um, And then occasionally, you know, we'll find that there are gaps. There are missing steps, just things that we neglected to write down, and then that requires a little bit of work and a little bit of research. But, yeah. That's a good test. Uh, I don't know if... If you write your documentation, then you also have to remember, if you've written it down and then you go to do that process, don't just do it from memory. Use your documentation. Right. Make sure it's still right. There was
0: a process that... I and uh, the previous director who I worked under who you probably remember uh, used to follow where um if one of us built something like say we're designing a brand new when we did our VM clusters when we did the the first uh you know red Hat cluster suite managed VM clusters uh, he built the first one Using Zen and like Red Hat Cluster Suite and uh, clustered LVM and like all these really difficult to manage and difficult to, to configure things, yeah. right? He wrote it all down in our wiki. When it came time to build the next one, I should say he built like a test system, right? When it came time to do it for reals or when he wanted someone else to learn how to do it, he didn't show you a damn thing. He said, here's the wiki. Go build it. Let me know if you have questions. And that worked well. Um, yeah. he, I, I inherited a bunch of services from him, and that's how I learned them. He said, here's a book. Here's the wiki I used to write it or to set it up. Let me know if you have questions. <laughs> and I mean, that's, it, it, was a, it was a stark difference from what I had at my last job to when I came in to, uh, to the college. But I think, from my perspective... I learned those services so much better by having to read the book, having to read the documentation, having to build the thing myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of that, I was able to, to manage them much better. You know, it's not just like, come on over here and sit next to me and I'll, I'll show you a few things. It's, you know, like you're going to architect this. You're going to take my architecture and redo it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, when I when I when I inherited Zimbra from him, Zimbra is a pretty complex system. The way we had it set up, uh, yeah, one of the things one of the things we didn't have was like a test environment for Zimbra. One of the first tasks he gave me when I came to the college was, "Here's my documentation. Build us a test environment," and I did. And <laughs> because of that, I knew the system so much better. So anyway, I think, I guess the the one last point we could touch on a little bit is uh, issue tracking systems, and this isn't necessarily 100% related to change management, but we did touch on it a bit. Um, I don't know how in-depth we really have to go, but it's, it's worth having something at your disposal to log your changes in, and issue tracking systems or request tracking systems in my case are really a good way to do that. Um, Again, you're further down this rabbit hole than I am. I don't know if you have any comments or if it's really just best left at that, like you should track I would, issues. Yeah, <laughs> I, I
1: think this could really be its own, or if you really want to get into the weeds, it could be its own um, topic. I would just say that as with the change management process, if you're going to have an issue tracking system, the important thing is that everybody has to buy in. Right. You can't have a situation where some people are using it and then some people aren't that's completely untenable and will undermine the um reliability of the system and you know some people will be like awesome here's a place to document things and some people are like "Ah, oh, why do i have to make a ticket but yes you know if but if the system's going to work, everybody's going to have to buy in, and everybody's going to have to agree to use the same platform.
0: This comes back so, to the same level of complainers that I was talking about before when talking about a change management meeting and board, right?
1: You know, at the very least, you know, for managing a particular service, everybody's got to use the same system to track it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's hard. That's a hard conversation. It is involved. hard.
0: I mean, we, we went through this ourselves. Uh, what you wanted was an issue tracker, and what we wanted was a request tracker. And it's hard to find the same thing in, like, those two services in the same application.
1: And fun fact, we did, and we wound up running two separate services to this right. day. Right, yep. Fine. We've we just, made it work.
0: Just, it's kind of a pain sometimes. Sometimes I wonder if I should just turn off RT and we'll start using Redmine. I don't think you've ever had the concern of, uh, I don't think you've ever considered turning off uh, Redmine and using RT, have you?
1: I can't say that's ever occurred to me as a reasonable step now. I have advocated in the past for considering turning off parts of Redmine and moving to GitLab, but... uh,
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, again, we could have a whole separate show about tracking change and tracking issues and tracking
1: everything. Where do you track issues? Right. And how do you manage projects? And are these the same thing? Because superficially, it seems like it's kind of the same stuff. And I'm not sure it is anymore. And I don't feel like I know what the right answer is.
0: Well, maybe uh, maybe in a future show, we'll delve further into that. I think we're probably covering enough for tonight. Uh, yeah. So, theoretically, next week, we'll have another guest on to talk more about DerbyCon. Somebody else who's from DerbyCon. Just a DerbyCon staple, really, is what we've been going for. Uh, If that doesn't pan out, we'll come up with some other topic to to chat about. Um, I have a couple. I have one (laughs) line into someone who could be a guest, and I I I don't know if uh, if they're going to respond or not. So we'll see. But I think we're going to call it a night for tonight, and then maybe in two weeks we can talk a little more about issue trackers and request trackers. I think we did cover this topic once before, but I think it was before you were a co-host, Charles, and you may have different perspective on the topic than just Jason and I did, which I think is who covered it last time.
1: I can't recall. Yeah. Uh, I got to check the documentation.
0: Yeah, right. Check the documentation, aka ironsystemin.com. (laughs) which is where I searched for the words change management to see if we had talked about change management before, and it came up empty. (laughs) So anyway, uh, I do want to give a quick shout-out to the Admin Admin podcast. Uh, I listened to a recent episode of theirs. Um, One thing, they talked about the same uh, article about the Quadriga CX uh, exchange, and they also gave us a shout-out, so I want to return the favor. Uh, they just simply mentioned that they had been in contact with us and they've been sort of, you know, whatever. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Just in communication with us. So uh, we've been in communication with them too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, uh, check out their podcast. It's pretty good stuff. Um, I had sort of fallen out of listening to them because I have too many podcasts to listen to. I've changed the way I'm listening to podcasts so I have more time to listen to them i.e. I'm listening to them while I'm working now instead of just while driving.
1: (laughs) I can't make that work.
0: (laughs) You can't? No? Sometimes they just fade into the background and I don't really get much out of them, but at least I can say I've listened to them. (laughs) I used to watch Netflix while working, so if I could make that work. Some days it didn't. I'd have to turn it off and, and actually work. So anyway, uh, yeah, I think we're going to close up for tonight. Uh, as usual, you can hear us on the second and fourth Wednesday of every month. Um, if you subscribe to us on YouTube, you can see when we're doing this stuff live. Um, if you're not watching us live, it is fun. Uh, we, we do enjoy having folks in the chat there. Uh, please give us feedback. I don't care if you email us, if you uh, leave comments on ironsystemmen.com, if you comment on YouTube or podcast or uh, sorry, um, Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to do it. Give us feedback. Let us know what you think. If you got any ideas for topics, please send them our way. We'll do our best to try to see if we can cover them. Um, sometimes we just don't know what we're talking about, and uh, we're not going to try to BS our way through something. Um, but if it's an interesting topic, we can learn about certainly. You know, I'm always up for learning something new. How about you? Absolutely. Right. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. I didn't see any reason to make an Instagram account, so don't look for us there.
1: (laughs) I think it's down right now anyway.
0: Oh, right. There was an outage today, wasn't there? Like Instagram and Facebook just like puked today. Kind of funny. It's almost like they're run by the same place on the same servers.
1: Weird. Change management process that may not have accounted for something really important. Perhaps.
0: Perhaps that is the problem. Uh, But anyway, just look for Iron Sysadmin on both of those platforms. Uh, YouTube.com slash Iron Sysadmin Podcast will find our YouTube channel where you can watch us live uh, and see some past episodes. You can join our Slack, which has been a lot of fun. We get a lot of interesting conversations out of there from time to time. IronSysadmin.com forward slash Slack will get you to the the join link. And, uh, of course, you can support our show monetarily via Patreon if you'd like patreon.com slash sysadmin. And I think that's it for tonight. Everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks for watching on YouTube, if that's where you're at. Want to say goodnight, Charles? Night, everybody. Have a good one. We'll see you in two weeks. Okay. Are you done boxing with your microphone? No.